0: I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places.
1: I swear on like the second to last day of her time on earth, she got up and made me a cup of coffee. Like it was, uh, I could not stop being hosted by her.
0: If you were sitting at the bedside of your best friend as they lived out their final days, do you think you'd be able to make time for laughter? Or would the grief be too much? Dying breaths and final moments are those we often see played out on page and stage, starring emotionally charged diatribes spoken through floods of tears. But when you're waiting to die, as our guest today will explain, those moments are actually fleeting. Unless it's sudden, dying can be long and, well, mundane, perhaps even funny at times. Showcasing just how normal death can be is the novel We All Want Impossible Things, the story of Ash and her lifelong friend Edie, who's dying in a hospice. You could call this book an autobiographical work of fiction, as it's based on the real experience of the author, Catherine Newman, who I'm delighted to say is my guest today. Chapter One, Finding the Humour Having been best friends for more than 40 years, Edie and Ash know each other better than anyone. So when Edie is diagnosed with ovarian cancer, Ash's life becomes shaped around caring for her, consumed with being there during her last days. Based on the premise, you might not expect this book to have so many laugh out loud moments, but I can assure you it is absolutely chock full of them. So how did Catherine come up with so much comedy in the face of death? And was it always her intention that it could be written as a comedy?
1: I guess yes, but I also think I couldn't have written it any other way. I think, um, you know, I'm half New York Jew and half England, that's my, my mom is British and my dad is a New York Jew. And I feel like, you know, it is my birthright as a Jew, gallows humor. Like if there's six Jews on the planet, it's because we were funny enough to survive. Like I, so I feel like that's a huge piece of it is just like, I come by that so honestly. I always feel like people like, you know, we didn't have time. We were fleeing the shtetl, whatever. There was no time to let the bread rise. That's how matzah. But like there was time to make a really long joke. You know, that's what I feel like. And then I do feel like English comedy is another part of my birthright. You know, Monty Python, like people couldn't hear what Jesus was saying. I still think of that scene in Life of Brian all the time where people were mishearing that. Like how deeply funny is that? Yeah, You know, the most sort of hallowed experiences in Christian text and they're just killing themselves, laughing about it. Yeah. There's a long answer to your question.
0: Well, it's a great answer. Uh, and it, it really does come across because I love inappropriate humor. And <laughs> a lot of your book is massively inappropriate, given <laughs> the fact that it's in a whole, I mean, just, just, there are so, we'll, we'll talk about some of them, but there are so many little touches where, you know, just the offhand use of a, of a phrase such as, yeah, oh, my feet are killing me. You know, somebody going really. You know, it's. I mean, as I said to you via email, I I read it in a single sitting. I didn't want to put it down. I wanted to do my shift in the hospice in Um, with this dying woman, and yet I I felt by the end, I, I stopped feeling bad for laughing my head off because. I kind of think it's what she would have wanted, you know, whether she's conscious or not, whether she's drifting in and out of being able to understand what the hell is happening to her. The stuff that goes on is genuinely funny. I I wanted to pick up on one. This woman has essentially said goodbye to her child and her child's father and has moved into this hospice for her final days and is spending them obsessively watching a webcam feed of a pregnant giraffe who is about (laughs) to give birth. And not only that, she's massively pissed off when she wakes up to find she's missed the birth. I mean, just the brilliant ephemera of dying you know it doesn't it's such a massive moment but it doesn't mean you it doesn't mean you don't want to see how the soap opera ends or how the pregnant giraffe ends you know it's amazing it's like these little touches they just really they really lift the whole thing
1: thank you thank you for that you are the first person to actually mention that particular detail so I'm very satisfied by that I mean I think one of the things and anyone who's done Time in hospice or sat by the bedside of a dying person knows this, but I think there's two things really surprising about it. One is that it's still a lot of time to fill, and it's kind of strange like you can't, it's like you sort of picture having this conversation that's like, I've always loved you, I've always loved you too, and that takes like 20 seconds, and then there's just like weeks on end of sort of sitting around. I think at some point either in this book or in real life. I can't, I now no longer remember where I've said what, but it's like hosting a really bad dinner party. Like there's a lot of time people still need to eat, you know, the body oddly needs what it needs still. Like it needs dinner. It needs to be cleaned up. It needs to be touched. And so I, there's just something about hospice, um, where weirdly like when my best friend was dying and that's a separate conversation, I think about what this book is based on, but we lay in her bed and like watched bad stuff on YouTube. (laughs) I mean, there was, and we had really profound conversations.
0: Yeah. I mean, dying in, in this book, particularly, it does take quite a long time. And in terms of things that the body needs, I, I think it would be remiss of me not to point out. I wasn't, expecting there to be quite so much sex in a book that is based around a dying woman, but her best friend, Ash, I mean, she certainly, she certainly gets around in between, Definitely. in between comforting her friend and having all of those profound conversations and sitting and listening and pulling hairs out of her, you know, mustache with tweezers and things like that. She is properly whoring it around, isn't she? I mean, she even says she, that to a gynecologist. Yeah. I kind of felt, you know, good on you, Ash, because she really did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it is a book about a person who um, in the face of this almost unfathomable loss, you know, this incredibly grounding, very long friendship is really grabbing at life and stuffing it into this hole. And so that to me feels very real. That and also the way that when you're in an experience like that, you're just kind of blown wide open. You know, you're so grief and love that just blow you open. And I think Ash is having that experience in the book.
0: She is. She is 100% living in the moment. And I wanted just to share a reflection that I had, which was I was deeply concerned for her. I know she was doing her best friend duty of being there and doing whatever she could to make however long amount of time, and it is finite as we as we can probably guess, because she's in a hospice. But she's doing everything except thinking about what happens next, what happens after the inevitable and that living in the moment does lead her to do extraordinary things and you know good for her because if that's the her way of making sense of it then that's great but I was you know that the whole time she's looking backwards at events from their lives and she's also being there in the moment and at very very few if any points does she reflect on you know what happens next she's a serial she fails to make decisions on a, on a regular basis. She can't even be bothered to get divorced because it's too, you know, expensive and things like that. And I, and I kind of thought, is she stuck in this moment right now in the hospice? Is this really defining her and and what, what happens next? Because she's not ill, no matter how much she tries to convince her gynecologist that she is ill and has the same thing, her friend which which obviously the technical term for it is ovarian cancer but she calls it vag cancer which i just think is it's just wonderfully funny but i was really concerned for her catherine that she doesn't appear to be thinking about the future is that because she doesn't want to think about a future without her friend
1: that's a great question i i i think you know at various moments in the book i compare it to um I compare the experience of sort of midway a dying person, I compare it to childbirth or, or time spent that kind of time out of time of time with little kids and stuff. But I think when you, when you were asking the question, one thing I was thinking was there's this way like during childbirth, right. Where you would take a class about childbirth, you know, you if childbirth takes all this time and the, the birth itself and you have a birth plan and blah, blah, blah. blah. There's nurses and you have a popsicle, whatever. You try it on your back. You try it on your side. You get in the tub and all of this. And you're so focused on the birth. And then they hand you a baby and you're like, Oh my God, the baby, you know, I sort of forgot. And I feel like from my personal experience, there is so much death is can be if you're lucky enough to have the opportunity to be with somebody while they're dying. It's so consuming the death, right? The needs of the person dying, the experience of the person dying. And I feel like it's actually a separate thing from the grief you're going to feel when the person leaves you. And it is very occupying and perhaps a little distracting because what I remember when my friend died is what I was, I needed to, I had like a twofold recovery. One was recovering from the trauma of her dying and one was grieving her, which was, they were sort of separate things weirdly, but I think that's what your question is getting at for me
0: regular listeners will be familiar with our sister project, the Writing Salon. I'm delighted to announce that in time for Christmas, we've just launched volume two of our anthology series, brand new writing from salon members. The Writing Salon exists to provide its members with a safe, supportive community to develop their craft. All levels of experience are welcome, as well as all genres and formats. Some members have no previous experience and others write regularly for stage, page and screen. Whether you're new to writing or looking to improve or refresh your approach, then the salon is for you. We believe that writers should write for readers. So in this anthology, journey with us to the hidden worlds of sports doping inside the radiation zone or perhaps places even harder to access. Discover the theatre of war or just the theatre of mild disagreement. And whether you're interested in people who've mislaid their bearings, who are coming to the end of their life, or those dipping into the waters of rebirth, we've got something for you. You'll find naked lodgers, insomniac lovebirds, and more than a few vengeful ex-partners to guide you on your way. Volume 2 is titled 12 Hours to Del Mar. I'll put a link in the show notes. But for now, back to the show. Chapter 2. Holding On. The humour in this book doesn't get in the way of the deeply moving prospect of a person losing a friend. In fact, it punctuates the grief in many ways, sitting in juxtaposition with the reality of what's going to happen. Despite all the laughs, I was still deeply moved when the inevitable struck. I couldn't put the book down except for one moment when I just needed my own moment. This one line told from the perspective of Ash – You could almost grab her wings and go, too. Hauntingly beautiful. Although Ash is in the room when the end comes, she talks about feeling a change in the room before Edie actually dies. And it reminded me of conversations I've had with medical professions who've said, very often when the end takes a long time to come, it's best if the loved ones aren't there almost like the person is holding on because they don't want to die in front of the people they care for. And that's something that Catherine has experienced firsthand.
1: I mean, it's interesting that you say that there was a moment, well, I thought it was towards the end at the time, but it was maybe a couple weeks from the end. But her husband said to me, (laughs) her husband, who's a very, this is in real life, of course, her husband, who's a very good friend of mine. And at some point he was like, can you get the hell out of here so she can stop hosting you? And I was like, no, I cannot. I'm going to be hosted till the very end. I swear on like the second to last day of her time on earth, she got up and made me a cup of coffee. Like it was, uh, I could not stop being hosted by her. But I, since then I, so I volunteer in a hospice also, this is a different So I'm there every week. I make Monday dinner in hospice. There's nine beds. So I feed whoever's eating. I feed them dinner once a week. And boy, do I see it there, especially parents who will not die with their kids in the room. And it moves me so much that they will not stop parenting. So if your kid's in the room, you are just going to hang on for it and not and it's not obviously not everybody but just what you're saying somebody leaves for a minute and the person goes and it's really that part is so deep that even if you're unconscious that the part of you that's aware of somebody you love in the room will not allow you to leave them it's so profound it's It's incredibly profound
0: it is it's it's its it really does move you in in many many ways the notion that you can love another human being that much despite all of the suffering you just hang on to spare them the horror of watching you die I mean I find that because that would appear to like that goes against everything that I I would believe as a you know I'm not a scientist but but surely you, you know you're focusing on Doing whatever you can to to stay alive, and yet you're doing this for someone else. That's remarkable.
1: It really is. I know it's so. It really is so profound that that element of it.
0: There are some fascinating relationships in the book, not least the two of them uh, around which the entire book is is based. But she has quite a difficult relationship with quite a number of quite a number of people i wanted to talk about um her relationship with bell who <laughs> on more than one occasion walks in when her mother is doing something that she she perhaps um shouldn't do she comes up with this brilliant phrase which is the notion of a nihilistic yard sale which i found <laughs> amazing Which And and she also threatens to get her mother a teacher that says something like, my best friend died and all I got were these lousy Ugg boots. But the notion of a nihilistic yard sale whereby people are paying five bucks for the privilege of not walking away with a bunch of crap that they don't (laughs) need. It's great. Because what I mean, Ash is also, you know, she's also she's a mother you know, she's a partner, she's got relatives, she's, you know, she's also got those people in her life as well. And those people that are demanding attention for her. So it's no wonder she's absolutely shattered, is it? And she talks about this the entire way through. She goes, I'm just, I'm so exhausted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a definitely a, the original title, the working title of the book while I was writing, it was wake me because I felt like, But then my editor was like, it sounds like it's going to be about a wake, which uh, and then of course it sort of is. And then we didn't call it that. But she is so tired. She is so deeply sort of on a cellular level. She is so exhausted. Um, And that is definitely I feel like her tiredness is like its own character in the book. Like she just is that tired. It's funny that you think she has a difficult relationship with Belle because I don't see it that way at all.
0: Maybe, maybe I have a difficult relationship with Belle. It might be that. Maybe.
1: It's really interesting. I think one of the things that um I was hoping the book would do is kind of show this really flawed person, right? Ash is an incredibly flawed character. She's She's a narcissist. She's very selfish in all these ways, even though she's incredibly loving, right? Like she's the most loving person. Very caretaky, um, loves her people really extravagantly. And what I wanted in the book was for her to be really imperfect and nonetheless be well loved by the people in her life, um,
0: despite that. I, I think she is, and I think you've you've absolutely nailed that. And this has come up. Time and again in this show, the notion that deeply flawed characters are actually perhaps the most authentic because they feel real, because they have their own flaws, they make mistakes, they do things that they shouldn't, and yet we, we love them for it, which is exactly what real life is actually all about. One of my favorite bits of narcissism is her jealousy about the photos of her <laughs> friend that she's not in, you know, when she's in a photograph with someone else, particularly a woman if it's edith (laughs) and someone else she can't stand that can she
1: these are the photos on edie's dresser in hospice and ash is like completely obsessed with them where she's like who the hell is that yeah no i know i love that about that character
0: chapter three the polenta cake The events that lead to the end and the way these characters are drawn, it's all so wonderfully normal. Throughout the book, Ash desperately tries to get her hands on the recipe of the most perfect lemon polenta cake that Edie once ate in the 1990s. It's all Edie wants to eat, and her best friend will be damned if she doesn't find it for her. A simple idea which brings to the fore this concept of time running out. We always think we have more time Funny and heartbreaking in equal measure, it's a simple quest that adds to the authenticity of this novel. Best of all, when Edie finally finds out she's going to be sent the cake, but not the recipe, she simply says, bitch recipe hoarder, and then eats the cake and it's never mentioned again.
1: Well, that is lifted, I got to say, that is directly out of life. My friend on her deathbed wanted this cake. It wasn't this, I, the only thing that's fictionalized, I swear in like the whole book is the, what this cake was The cake in real life is a Venetian wine cake. And I have fictionalized it as a Sicilian lemon polenta cake. I think for me that there's something about somebody dying that is very, it's an experience that's a little like vertigo where you are always sort of teetering at the edge of this abyss, right? That's it is a bottomlessness. And when you're given a task, you can hang everything on the hook of this task. So I had a task and it was getting this cake recipe and boy, could I do that, right? I couldn't do anything else, but I could obsessively hunt down this cake and did and succeeded. And I think for me, what that is, is in the, how that functions in the book for me is that Is that that anticlimactic moment of, I mean, spoiler alert, Edie eats the cake and it's like, eh, you know, after after, Ash has like devoted herself to getting it. It's not like the worst cake she's ever eaten, but it doesn't live at all up to her memory. And I feel like that is very, um, that is what it's like. You hang all your energy on these, actually, these tasks you can accomplish because what else are you going
0: to do yeah i mean they go to extreme borderline stalking lengths <laughs> yeah. to track the chef down <laughs> yeah i it did make me think imagine being the, imagine being the person whose recipe that was you are like who are these crazy idiots <laughs> it's been um it's been really interesting reflecting on on death as i mentioned to you my uncle um passed away during covid he he went into hospital and uh, and didn't come out uh, alive. And it was a long time before we could get together as a family. So that's been in my mind recently, as is the fact that last two weeks ago, I was at the funeral of someone that I worked with um, a number of years ago. And it was fun swapping stories. Um, the funeral, however, was brutal because it was clear that he had been able to carve out the time to plan it so everything that happened Mm -hmm. the music choices the readings Mm -hmm. the poetry the photographs everything and it kind of made me think and i think in a good way what would i want you know what would i do because so often you are not you don't have the luxury of deciding how people get to say Goodbye, and how they um how they see you off, and and there is a you know a fleeting a fleeting reference to the fact that you know is it a, is it an interment is it a cremation, but his was um his was a very what I would call traditional almost Old Testament funeral. with my ex colleague, and I was kind of thinking this stuff's really important, and you might think, well, I'm not around, you know, I'm sort of not here, I, it, it doesn't matter, but I think. In that moment in that funeral and reading your book, I think it, it it mattered to me, you know, how how the end comes and what happens and how people sort of celebrate your life. And and that, even though you don't go there and again, this is this is an example of the great restraint in your writing, it's when they do have a sequence at the end where she's gone and they talk about her and they and they celebrate her. It's so uplifting and moving and also heart crushingly tragic you know at the same time death is death is the most incredible thing to be around and i do not cry easily and yet there are certain things that just come out of nowhere that get me and reading your book and, and thinking about all, and all of this being you know being played out, I was like, I'm going to have to you know I have, to have a word with myself here. This is this is getting embarrassing, but it's so important. I think that despite all of the humor in this, there is this moment to just reflect on what's happened, which is we have lost a really important human being. She's no longer with us in person, or we now have other memories, which is why I assume. She doesn't really live in the hospice. She lives through the memories as Ash reflects mm. on, you know, on their life together because she's not capable of living in the moment because of what's happening to her. But she is as every bit as real a character as everybody else. And I, I found that deeply moving. And I, as I said to you, I, I have been reflecting on the notion and the nature of death, which is which is wonderful and a real testament to your writing because I think you know, if a hundred thousand people read this book, you'll get more than a hundred thousand different interpretations of it. That's the beauty of being a reader. I get the privilege of telling you my reaction (laughs) to it, which not, which not everyone will, will get to do, but it, it has made me think about things that go way more than the precinct that you've got in, in the book. So I wanted to tell you that. And some of those things have been difficult, to think about because they do involve you know death but I always come back to how damn funny you know this whole thing is and when you know when we did finally get to celebrate my uncle's life it was the most joyous oh, occasion I'm so
1: glad. I'm Your funny Uncle as
0: yeah I'm funny as hell because there were stories I didn't know you know, and you're hearing them for the first time. You're going, "That's hilarious, right? That's absolutely brilliant." And 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 that really, I think, is um, what I take away from 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 your book, which is bizarrely, death is funny as hell at times.
1: It is at times. It really is. I know. I know. It's so strange too to think about, even when you're saying that about living on in the stories. You know that sort of just how somebody how the fact of somebody actually is imprinted on your body. I I mean, I know in the book, Ash is trying to explain to Edie's son that he's actually literally made out of her care, that every bite of food he's ever eaten in his life, uh, every sip of, you know, breast milk he drank as an infant, like his very bones are made of this mother love. And I feel that there are, you know, like synapses in my brain that are created by my lost friend. Like Ooh. it is. And I know that these are the deranged thinkings of a grieving person where you're like, where is she? <laughs> you know, She's got to be here somewhere. Yeah. Where, but I, but I feel that we are actually physically changed in our love relationships. And, and so it's, it is kind of nice to imagine, or it's nice to imagine that you hear a story about your uncle and like that exists in like a, at least a sort of electric charge in
0: your brain. One of the things I I like to talk about with a writer is, not the notion of of what happens next, but if we were to meet these characters a little bit later on, where would they be? And of course, there is no answer to that because you haven't written it, and and it doesn't really matter. And and actually, a writer recently said, "Well, what do you think?" Which I thought was the most brilliant way of turning it around on me. And so I'll, I'll share what I think. I think, okay. I think, I think, if we were to meet Ash another year or two on, she would be still delightfully flawed. And hopefully, the only thing I hope for is that she's managed to get some rest in some way. But I think she does the thing that Edie would have wanted her to do, which is to carry on
1: mm-hmm. and
0: to live every day as if it were your last. Because when you're in a hospice, every day pretty much could be your last. It's it's not much fun. So I I like to think that, that Edie's absence from her life may cause her... Well, it will cause her initially um, a huge amount of pain and grief, but in time she will be stronger. But I also think she will remain as brilliantly screwed up and flawed and narcissistic as she is now, which is which is why we love her. But do you share that? Do you think she's going to be OK? Um,
1: I... <laughs> I feel quite confident that she's going to be OK. Yeah. You know, I was starting to say this before. I mean, what's it's very important to me that she's not punished for being flawed in the book. Um, She's not punished for it. And that for me, both as a feminist, but also just as a flawed person myself, I think there's a way that the book is about. It really is about the sort of healing possibilities of, of being loved well. And she is loved very well by her daughters and her ex- husband, estranged husband, husband. Her parents adore her, you know, all her friends. And I feel like that for me, um, what we know about Ash is that she puts her relationships at the forefront of her yeah. life and I think you have a strong sense or I hope you do that she will be carried by that
0: yeah I do completely I do think she will she will um make some missteps along the way um oh, that's a, inevitably that's an entirely authentic <laughs> um course of action for her Catherine as I understand it one final question if I may if I understand it this you, you've written many things before, um, whether that be journalism or whether that be fiction. This is this your first novel for an adult grown-up audience? Because I know uh, you, write, you yes. write a lot of YA. This is your first adult grown-up book. Is that right? That's right. And so what does the future hold? Will you return to the world of YA or are you sticking in, um, in this genre for now?
1: I am writing another novel for adults. It's almost finished, Knockwood. That is We need a better elevator pitch for it because I just described it to somebody as a book about (laughs) the reproductive mayhem of being a female-bodied person. It is a book that allegedly is about this one-week vacation at the beach that this um, middle-aged woman takes with her husband and two grown kids at a place that they've gone their whole lives. So it's very layered with memories of babies and children and motherhood. Um, And it's also a lot about midlife embodiedness as a woman. It's about menopause and, and about pregnancy. And uh, so it's about a lot of things. I hope it's funny. I keep laughing out loud while I'm writing it. And then my husband says, you know, what'd you just write? And then I read it out loud to him. And he's like, mm, you
0: know, Well, I, I was asked, I, my, my wife said to me, cause I kept laughing. She said, what's the, what's the book about? And I told her, and she was like, really, why, <laughs> I, why are you laughing? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we'll see if anybody but me thinks it's funny, but I think it's really funny.
0: Well, I think if you can make yourself laugh, I think that's that's half the battle. <laughs> so for any listeners um listening to this on the day of broadcast and you're getting book vouchers or book tokens for Christmas, then you could do a considerable amount worse than this wonderful novel, We All Want Impossible Things, which is published next month. Catherine Newman, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you. The pleasure's been all mine, Mark.
0: Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Catherine Newman for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? Feel at liberty to lift your fiction straight from real life. Don't just be inspired by what's happened to you. Some events need to be written exactly how they happened. Life can often be more surprising than anything you could imagine. Deeply flawed characters have become a bit of a feature of this series. Remember, unlikable characters are often the most authentic. But just because they may not be liked doesn't mean they aren't loved. Make sure there's something for your reader to grip onto that endears them to their flaws. And finally, death comes up in many of the stories we write but we often forget how normal it can be. Like Aoife Abbey told us in series one, death is often written with too much drama, and by writing accounts that are closer to reality, we can move our audience in a more profound way. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and will put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk